Welcome back to Film School Fess-Ups. I'm your host, Drew Morton, Associate Professor of Mass Communication at Texas A&M University at Texarkana. Today I'm going to be talking about Eyes Without a Face with Clint Hanna, but before we get to that, uh, Clint and I actually ended our conversation with a summary of some of our favorite horror movies, and I thought I'd take a, a brief moment to talk a little bit about one of the, uh, the motivators for me producing this podcast. Um, essentially, earlier in the year, I had a bit of my own personal blind spot. I think I talked a little bit about this on the Suspiria episode with uh, Julia Rhodes. I hadn't seen a lot of Dario Argento, but I hadn't seen a lot of Jolly in general. Um, we had gotten a video submission from a colleague of mine, Kevin Ferguson, good friend, at uh, in transition about uh, Jolly films. Uh, it was about lizard and a woman's skin. And I was reading his statement, and I'm like, these these Italian films sound really interesting, and I can't believe that I haven't watched them, especially given my, my enjoyment of horror movies and my enjoyment of film noir, which they're often described as kind of being this weird hybrid of uh, film noir and uh, kind of slasher movies. So I, I spent January to March kind of diving pretty deeply into... Uh, the genre and trying to get a sense of them and uh, working my way through different catalogs and different documentaries about them and different readings. So we'd, we'd kind of, again, touched a little bit on this on the Suspiria episode, um, but I know the way folks tend to consume these episodes is they, they pick them up if they've seen the film. So I'm not sure how many people actually uh, listen to the Suspiria one. I'm not sure how many people are going to listen to this one. Uh, it's been kind of interesting. I think the uh, the biggest breakthrough episode we've had so far is uh, Terminator 2, uh, probably given that most people know that film. So if uh, needless to say, it's a long-winded disclaimer to say if I'm repeating myself, I apologize in advance, and you can skip ahead a couple of minutes to the uh, conversation that I have with Clint. Otherwise, stand by for five of my favorite Jolly, aside from the Argento ones, because uh, I spoke at quite length uh, about my favorite Argento films during the uh, Suspiria episode, so if you haven't listened to that episode, I'd strongly suggest you check out Bird with a Crystal Plumage, Deep Red, um, Tenebrae, and uh, Opera. Those were probably my four favorite of the uh, of the Argento cycle, again, because I don't necessarily think of Suspiria as being a giallo film. So beyond that, um, I kind of went through chronologically, and I watched uh, a lot of Baba. So I, I watched uh, Black Sunday, which again, I don't necessarily know if I'd classify as a uh, giallo film. It's certainly a precursor, and you can see his style there, um, but it's much closer in tone to kind of a, you know, like a hammer horror film, uh, heavier on the atmosphere. Um, it's about this woman who is burned at the stake and punished for being a witch, and she comes back to haunt the family of the uh, the folks who uh, persecuted her. But just in terms of style and beautiful black and white photography, you can definitely see where uh, Tim Burton kind of cribbed a lot of his style from. So I enjoyed that to a great deal. Uh, other Baba was Blood and Black Lace, uh, kind of the uh, prototypical um, giallo film. Basically, if you combined the color scheme of Batman 66 with busty Italian women getting cut up, you'd have Blood and Black Lace. Um, it's probably not my favorite, but it's certainly important uh, in the way that, you know, Maltese Falcon or Double Indemnity are in terms of being at the forefront of the genre and uh, distilling down certain of the motifs. The Bava film I actually really enjoyed um, is, I think it's called The Crazy Eye or The Girl Who Knew Too Much. It has two titles. Uh, so some of these, most of them I think I watched in, in English dubbed, so I haven't seen the Italian version of a couple of these, so that may be a huge faux pas or mistake. I'm not quite sure. Uh, but what I liked about Girl Who Knew Too Much, again, I, I watched the English version, was kind of how it's this weird parody of a Hitchcock film. And uh, it's very kind of self-aware that way. It's playing with different uh, sound cues, and uh, it, it kind of really made me think about how the idea of genre and evolution, um, the idea that Tom Schatz comes up with, where it's kind of the strict linear pattern might be problematized a bit, because I can't remember the exact year, but it's got to be in the 50s, and it's it's doing some really weird shit with uh, the thriller genre that, you know, like, I'm sure 
Mel Brooks is going to do in High Anxiety to a certain point, but this is much earlier. So that that film is notable for that. And uh, the other two I've got are Lizard in a Woman's Skin, but a sexually repressed lesbian. Uh, again, the gender politics of it aren't necessarily the the wokest, uh, who may or may not be a murderer. Um, and what have you done to Solange? Uh, which is probably the bleakest and the most heartfelt of the Jalo films that I watched. I, I can't say a whole lot about it without spoiling it, but it's it's really got a humdinger of an ending. It it really goes through for the throat, and uh, I I appreciated that about it. it. It actually really resonated with me emotionally. So. Five Jolly films for you to check out. Black Sunday, arguably not a Jolly film. Uh, Blood and Black Lace, Girl Who Knew Too Much, Lizard in a Woman's Skin, and What Have You Done to Solange? I believe they're all out on Arrow um, or Kino uh, in the case of uh, Girl Who Knew Too Much and uh, Black Sunday. And uh, again, those are Gento films. If you missed that episode, we're going to be Deep Red, uh, Bird with a Crystal Plumage, and uh, Tenebrae and Opera. I really enjoyed Opera as a late period um, a late period, uh, Argento film. So that brings me to my conversation today with Clint Hanna. We're going to be discussing Eyes Without a Face, but first a little bit of biographical info on him. Clint holds a BA from Stephen F. Austin University, where he studied theater and film. He's a freelance editor and full-time media producer in the Texarkana area, who's done work for the local Baptist church and a documentary on the Texarkana comic book store Excalibur. Uh, His documentary played at Wizard World Film Fest, Austin Film Fest. And uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's give it up for Clint. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Clint. Uh, my first question is the the question I ask all my guests. What what got you into movies? Um, well, that's you know, uh, like I've heard, I think some of your um, previous guests and maybe yourself talk about. You know, we're we're part of what I call the video store generation, where we grew up hitting the video store every weekend, every Friday night, and um, you know, I was another uh, victim of the five movies for five days for five dollar uh deal and so um you know spent every weekend with a stack of movies by the tv um just going through them and um that's probably probably what played the biggest factor in me um loving movies falling in love with film uh and then ultimately wanting to become a filmmaker myself later on so so i'm curious i think you're the first guest i've had on from texarkana Yeah, yeah that seems right um, what what did like the video store culture look like here? Was it a mom and pop operation? Was there a blockbuster? What did that uh, uh, What did that look like? It was kind of a combination. At least when I was a kid and growing up, uh, I actually grew up in New Boston, which is about twenty minutes from here, but very I mean same area. Um, we had at least two or three uh, mom and pop video stores always um, in town. Uh, the big one. Uh, was called Video Zone, and um, man, that store alone made an impression because uh, you'd walk in and it was just this huge space. It's as a kid, it just seemed cavernous with just all these book, you know, like book uh, shelves just filled top to bottom with VHS tapes, and um, almost overwhelming. And you just get lost, you know, just cruising the the shelves and stuff. And um, so Video Zone was a big one, and the logo for Video Zone, I'll never forget it, it was kind of like a Twilight Zone uh, font, <laughs> and it had this big, like, space field behind it, so it just seemed really, um, it was a destination place, you know, to head to Video Zone on Friday night and, and pick up a stack of movies. So, that, w- before, you, before you move on, so what did, like, Video Zone have, like... Were you able to find, like, most AFI movies there? Was it mainly cult? Like, what was their selection like? Pretty uh, pretty mainstream, I guess. Um, I've heard you use the word uh, canonical. Yeah. So I guess they'd be mainly canonical movies, main mainstream Hollywood movies. I mean, they had a huge, they had a huge kids section, and then there'd be, um, you know, sci-fi and horror, and those are probably the two areas that I spent the most time in, especially once I got into like middle school. Um, but always new releases of whatever the latest movies were that month or that week. Um, but then they also had a pretty impressive, or at least to me in my mind, it was an impressive back catalog of, I guess I wouldn't necessarily say classics, but 
older movies from, you know, 70s, 60s and older stuff. Um, you know, so it was it was impressive to me at the time. Cool. Um, and then eventually, I know here in town we had they had a blockbuster for sure, at least one, if not two, at one point. And then there was another big store called Video Giant, which I, I think may have been a mom and pop store. And then eventually we got a movie gallery. There was a movie gallery here in town, and then eventually we got a movie gallery there in New Boston. So huh. it was a it was a mix between mom and pop stores and and the chains, which um, are officially no more. It's it's sad. I uh, I was tracking. Uh, blockbuster alaska um just up until they closed recently like a month ago i mean they, i think they finally shut down their last store so blockbusters are officially no more yeah it's funny the uh 7-eleven across from my apartment in uh, los angeles used to be a blockbuster so it was a it's a strip mall now with like three kiosks or four kiosks maybe but it all had been a blockbuster at one point and so they've got the parkings you know, like Arrow, that still looks like a torn ticket stub. And for yep. like years, I kept meaning to like call whoever owned the building, and I was like, I should just like buy that sign. I don't know what I would do with it, but I, I should figure something out or yeah, see if I can yeah. have it. And then it disappeared. The blockbuster that was here in town is Fuzzy Taco now. Oh, and that's they right. Have, they still have the yeah, yeah. Still have the ticket stub Arrow sign. Yeah, no, that's funny. Um, I was actually. So, like, you know how Facebook has memories that pop up? You know, like, you did this. So, like, two years ago today, I was in Philadelphia. And when I was there, I took a... Or no, I was in Baltimore, and I went to Philadelphia. But to go from Baltimore to Philadelphia, I had to take a Greyhound from this mall. And so I hung out in the mall a little bit. And it was, like, the last mall I had ever been in that had a, a sun coast. Mm-hmm. And I went in there, and I was like do you guys realize what you have here? Like, and they were just like, they just, they assumed there were sun coasts all over the place. And I was like, you're like the Japanese guys during world war two who were like hiding in a cave. Who like, you know, it was, it was bizarre, but yeah, that you could buy DVDs there. They had Blu-rays, they had like pop figures and all that. But yeah, it was, I, I thought I went into a, a time capsule or something. It was, really yeah, man, I, I loved sun coast. We had one here in central mall, um, probably towards the end of grade school for me, okay. maybe a year or so into high school, not long. I mean, maybe five or six years tops, but man, that place was magical to me. I mean, um, and also, I mean, before I had a car, you know, we'd only come into Texarkana maybe once a week or so. And so anytime I got to make this pilgrimage to Suncoast, it was a big deal, you know, sure. and you go in there and see movie posters and, um, everything. It was, it was, a it was a special experience, and I'm kind of it's sad that you know younger people won't experience that. Well, it's it's hard too because like I, I talk to my students about this a lot, and we talk about like the importance of physical libraries or the importance of physical stores for no other reason than you find so many things when you're literally browsing a shelf, right? If you're on Netflix, you kind of have to know to look for something. If you're on Amazon, you have to know a title or a person in it. Yeah, you know, sometimes it pops under recently added or certain genres. But I remember just finding so many movies just by glancing on the shelves and seeing what was there. And so you you lose that when you lose these other outlets for it, be it Borders, which kind of replaced Suncoast. And now Barnes & Noble, I think, is up for sale and probably won't last much longer. I keep... Some of my friends who buy all those titles during the Criterion sale are like, how long can we count on this? And I'm like, probably not much longer. And the fact yeah, that Amazon's been dropping their prices to like 25 bucks, they're in spitting distance where it's like, it's it's going to be gone. So, yeah. Yeah. And also, the thing about those kind of stores is also the hunt. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, pre-internet or pre-widespread um, you know, internet, <clears throat> you know, a lot of times you would just hear about a movie from a friend or someone else. And then, I mean, you could spend years looking for it or keeping an eye out for it. And then when you finally found it, it was such a reward that you finally um, got a hold of this thing and got to see it for yourself. And I think that experience, aside from maybe some things that are really obscure, has kind of been lost too. And and I miss the, the thrill of the hunt sort of going after, you know, movies that you just couldn't easily get a hold of, you know, before iTunes or 
any other streaming service or anything. Just there are a lot of movies you couldn't couldn't get your hands on easily. Yeah, no, absolutely. I remember one of the first titles I think I bought at a Suncoast was Carnival of Souls on Criterion, which it's it's this great little horror. Movie. I don't know if you've seen that one. Have you seen that? Oh, you. Oh, you, I should have given you that as another choice. It's uh, it's like a seventy-five minute, like not even a B horror movie. Like it was these guys who did industrial films during the week, so like training videos for like a concrete factory or something. And they wrote this little horror movie about this girl who gets some. It's kind of starts off like Beetlejuice. There's a car accident and the car goes into a, a creek, and then she emerges from it but she keeps seeing visions of these different ghosts and stuff but it has such a great sense of place and just really eerie imagery that even though they don't have a big budget and even though some of the acting is really hokey it, it's pretty creepy it's got some great atmosphere but yeah it was a it was a criterion disc that i was like man i gotta track this down and i remember going to the mall with my uh my ex-girlfriend from high school and she found it for me and was like let's we can we can get it we can watch it and yeah there's there's something we said for that because you don't take it you don't take it for granted right when you have to hunt these things down all of a sudden it's like you make a point of watching it whereas now i'll buy a stack of movies and it might take me five years to finally pop one in the in the player you know yeah those kind of movies are, are the best i mean i i enjoy movies that are really atmospheric like that and if it's a low budget thing or something that you can really tell um, these guys had to use the resources that they had at their disposal it just makes it a little sweeter or something yeah you know? no it's it's got something lived in about it and it's funny too we're, we're talking about this this kind of thrill of the hunt and and finding some you know kind of unearthing a gem and that kind of thrill you get as a movie watcher eyes without a face was actually one of those for me so, um, believe it or not, Eyes Without a Face, when it kind of first came out, um, the French critics didn't really like it. Um, they looked at it, and they, Franjou, the director, had done a lot of documentary work. He had done this uh, really well-known documentary called Blood of the Beasts, where it's about, um, it's actually on the, the disc if you want to watch it. But it's, yeah. it's maybe 20 minutes, and it's about um, a slaughterhouse. And what it's primarily known for is it's very graphic in how it depicts the different animals being killed in the slaughterhouse and Frondreau basically made the argument that it's you know it's your moral obligation if you're going to eat meat to see how this is prepared he's like I'm not saying you shouldn't do it I'm just saying you need to know what goes into the to the the pork chop or I can't remember I think it's veal in the movie Mm -hmm. so he'd been known for his documentary work and then he does this like horror movie and people were just like, what the what the hell is this? And it, it comes out at this weird time where it's not the French New Wave, but it's not the old school of uh, kind of tradition of quality where you did these literary adaptations in France. So the folks don't really know what to make of Franju, and the, the film kind of went lost for a while. So I remember as an undergrad in, in film history, it was, a, it was a class that surveyed world cinema. So you did Hollywood, you did Europe, you did everything. Uh, and it went all year. We kept reading about this this movie, Eyes Without a Face, and the, the whole class was like, "Wow, this sounds crazy, right? This person gets their face cut off. It's it's grisly. It's kind of pretty." Like all the different reviewers were talking about how it's got this kind of poetic beauty to it, and uh, no one could find it. It wasn't on a disc yet, and I remember uh, the student union theater at my school had gotten a restoration print so this was maybe two or three years before the criterion dvd came out and um yeah like my wife and i went on one of our first dates to see it and so it was like a sweetest day which is kind of like valentine's day in the midwest i think it's in like november or october it was around halloween and um yeah we went and saw the movie and it was like in certain ways it's kind of a messed up date movie but in other ways like (laughs) i was like the fact that she kept going with me afterwards was like uh, that's that's what made it all worthwhile. Yeah, I think I've I've heard you talk about that, and um, it definitely sets the tone for moving forward. Yeah, yeah, but it it's also like I don't know, like it's such a unique horror movie. So, well, before we we actually start diving into the uh, the meat of the matter, um, let me actually backpedal just a little bit and and ask this question because it's always kind of 
made me curious. So we've got a, a Cinemark in town. We've got a major chain. Um, mm-hmm. Before that got here, or maybe while it was here, did we ever have like an art house? Did we have like an indie theater where they'd show like old movies? Or yeah, I didn't think so. No, the closest we ever had, at least as as long as I've been alive, before it was uh, Cinemark Twelve. It was a Cinemark Eight or Movies Eight. Um, and then also there was a, it may have been a drive-in at one point oh, off wow. of the interstate, uh, Joy Cinema 6. And when I was a kid, it was like the second run theater and it would show things, you know, a few months after they left the main theater and it burned down, I guess when I was in early high school, sometime around 99, 2000, I think it, it burned down. Um, but I can remember as a kid going to see or, or trying to go to see um, the first uh, Ninja Turtles movie. The oh, yeah, yeah. Ninja Turtles movie, and the projector had, like, broken or shattered or something. And I remember the guy saying, oh, there's glass everywhere, you know, you're not going to be able to see the turtles. And so we ended up going <laughs> to see um, uh, Ernest Goes to Jail instead, and that was my introduction to Ernest. And um, saw other movies there. I mean, I remember seeing, like, Congo there and stuff like that so that's the funny thing about those second run theaters like the one we had nearby when i grew up would play you know second run movies but once in a while you'd get like a like a disney vault title like the rescuers or you know old you know three stooges movie so it was was very strange in terms of how they would program it so i was kind of curious all right yeah cool as far as i know we never had like an art house okay uh, anywhere nearby yeah no i was kind of curious about that all right let's uh i'm gonna do a, a brief plot summary here um not that there's that much to actually summarize in this movie really um so spoilers for for listeners who actually haven't seen eyes without a face and they'd like to otherwise uh here we go so it's essentially a, a film that's about a kind of triangle right you've got a plastic surgeon uh, and his assistant, Louise, played by Alita Valley from uh, Suspiria, who we talked about last week, or last episode. And uh, essentially what they're doing is going around Paris, kidnapping young women so that the plastic surgeon slash professor can cut off their faces and try to transplant them onto the face of his daughter, Chris- of his daughter Christiane's um mangled face essentially his daughter had gotten in a car accident and had suffered uh this this kind of um horrible accident to her uh, her facial features so um as the film goes on i think they kidnap two or three different women and the, the first one doesn't work well and the face deteriorates and the woman jumps out a window and the second one lasts a little longer um, but the face deteriorates again. It's there's kind of shades of of dark man in this, where like he, you know, how like he puts it on and it bubbles up. Like it's it's pretty grotesque. Um, but essentially, the the interesting dynamic in here for me is that the daughter very quickly, Edith um, Schaub, I think her last name is. I'm trying to remember. She's in Holy Motors. Becomes disillusioned and disenchanted with this whole process, right? So by like the second or third woman, she's just not having it anymore. So she actually kills the Louise character, uh, who we find out had been working for the doctor because the doctor had saved her uh, facial features in a plastic surgery uh, procedure. And uh, eventually there's all of these animals in the house and the homestead. There's doves and dogs and... uh, Christiane frees the animals that end up attacking her father and, very appropriately, mangling his face before she walks out into the wilderness. Um, so that's the long and short of the plot of Eyes Without a Face. Did I miss anything you were planning on maybe talking about, Clint? Uh, no, I think you no. covered it all uh, plot-wise. Okay. So um, I, I always ask this this kind of question. Why do you think this is an important movie? Why do you think people remember it? as being this kind of classic of horror. Like what what do you what did, what did you see in it, not knowing maybe necessarily as much about it? Yeah, I um I I, I had heard about this movie just a few years ago, uh, from a video that Edgar Wright did going into the Criterion closet. Mm. 
he's picking out a few things, and the first movie he picks out is Eyes Without a Face. And he tells this story about um, his dad had told him the story about, yeah, I saw this really scary movie, you know, back in the 60s. It was a French film, and it was about this, you know, girl with a mask and blah, blah, blah. And then years later, Edgar Wright had seen it um, in art college or something, and he's like, uh, yeah, so yeah, I saw that movie. It's called Eyes Without a Face. And apparently his dad was like, no, that's not it. And, uh, <laughs> but so he like had to get the criterion to prove to him, yes, this was the movie <laughs> you were talking about. Um, so I would think, I would say probably more than anything else, just the visual, um, and the way it's shot, um, is pretty, especially for 1960. I mean, it's a pretty stark, um, haunting image. Um, I'll go ahead and get into this. The mask itself has that blank yeah. canvas quality that I think, um, was a pretty direct inspiration probably to John Carpenter for Michael Myers. Um, and also it kind of reminded me of the Wicker Man, the way the Wicker Man, like, um, tower or statue, for lack of a better word, it has kind of this featureless face, which, like, adds to the creep factor. Um, so, yeah, I would say that it's, and it's, it's handled pretty, um, it's handled with a lot of, uh, subtlety. I mean, it's, it is very, it has kind of this, I don't know if lyrical is the right word but um it has kind of a soft touch to the movie to the way things are handled and and his coverage of things and when they show things and when they don't and um it's just kind of deftly handled and so i think the combination of all those things probably contributed a lot to the impact that it made on the people that saw it at the time yeah no i think that's that's a pretty fair read of it i think i think a lot of it comes from its kind of unsettling tone because at certain moments there's almost a documentary quality to it, like when he's giving the the surgery, and there's that like break that photo breakdown where he's documenting mm-hmm. how her face is deteriorating every day. Um, it clinical. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very kind of clinical, but it it doesn't necessarily jive with the rest of the movie. Um, and then you get the scene where she walks in on the the person who's about to be prepared and she doesn't have the mask on and you actually see her face as mm-hmm. being just the muscles and the tissue um, which is a great reveal right it it kind of comes straight out of universal monster movies mm-hmm. but then there's these beautiful moments where she'll be like walking around the woods with the mask on and it's both kind of pretty and haunting and yeah you you thought of um halloween for me i look at the mask and it's like I think of like Vanilla Sky or something like that, where it is, it's like there's features here and there's something going on. And it, it seems in far away and like medium shots, it almost seems like some it's it's okay and it's right. But then you start to look at it and there's something kind of uncanny about it where mm-hmm. it looks normal, but it's not. Um, and so th- I see a lot of traditional horror elements on this right so you've still got like the nature versus science thing that we see in in frankenstein where it is very much this kind of you know man who's proud in his abilities and is trying to you know harness the powers of nature and be a godlike figure who ultimately you know overreaches and is kind of brought down in his hubris right we get that I'd forgotten about that moment where he's taunting the other dad mm-hmm, at, yeah. the, at the beginning where he's like, you know, where he's basically claimed the the body of the girl, the first girl he's kidnapped to steal the face right. of. He claims her as being his daughter. Um, and yeah, he he's like, you know, the guy is like, oh, I'm so glad my daughter's still alive. And he's like, well, I should comfort you. And of course, he's just killed his daughter. So it's like, right, right. wow, that's, that's a wicked twist of the knife. So... Yeah, to say that this doctor has a bit of a god complex would be <laughs> an understatement. I mean, he makes he's, he has several lines where he says stuff like, um, you know, oh well, we can save him, and of course we can. Like he just assumes that he has the ability to, you know, affect these changes that he doesn't really have any business doing. And I can't. How do you pronounce the the doctor's name, the character's name? It's like. Janesser or something? Janessier, uh, I think. Yeah, it's been a while since I did my French class, but yeah, that's Janessier, I think. Yeah, and you were talking about universal horror. One of the first, about halfway through, the thought popped in my mind that I felt like I was watching a like a lost Twilight Zone episode 
it kind of had that quality for me. Yeah, and you and you certainly see that that kind of nature and science kind of theme coming out with the animals, right? Where he's got all of these animals caged up, but it's just kind of, you know, we're back to Jurassic Park. You can do this, but it's this artificial illusion that you have yeah. this under control. And sure, as this, soon as that German shepherd gets out, it, it shows him who's boss at the end. Yeah, that the uh, when he first, there's a scene where he first, like, comes home, and you sort of hear these animal sounds off in the background, and that was a very, like, unsettling... Um, thing to do in the movie because they don't pay that off till a bit later that you see these cages and then oh yeah it's these dogs and the cages themselves the design of the cages is pretty um severe i mean they're these big like wrought iron looking um container looking things they've got these poor dogs in and they just seem a bit over the top to just a regular you know dog pen or something um I didn't look who the production designer was, but whoever made those things had some fun designing them. Yeah, no, well, uh, talking about set design, it made me wonder, like, what other influences did you kind of perceive here? Where else did you... So you, you've talked a little bit about the mask, for instance, um, influencing Halloween a little bit. Where did you kind of think... Who are Who are the... The disciples of Franju's kind of approach. Who did you kind of think is making horror movies like Eyes Without a Face today when you were watching this film? Um, you know, that's a good question. Um, I mean, the first one that pops in my mind, I guess it's just the the gothic romance, gothic horror stuff. I mean, I could definitely see someone like Guillermo del Toro mm. being inspired by this kind of thing. I mean, it was kind of he picked up a little, or I could I could see pieces of this in something like Crimson Peak or something like that beyond him I, I probably couldn't name you a name of a another director that was like had a heavy sort of gothic romance influence today no i think he was the first person i thought of when i was watching it and you know his kind of beautiful ugliness is like his his mo so yeah it, it certainly came through and you've got that kind of menacing but playful score during certain moments which I get kind of a Tim Burton vibe at different moments where, like, there's that weird scene in the graveyard, too, where they're, like, they're doing, what are they, trying to switch the body out or put it, put her in the, they, I think they're trying to put her in the crypt, right, the other body? Right, yeah. After, yeah. after the, I think it's, um, just checking my notes here, keep track of the, of the girls. Um, is it Edna? I think Edna's the the second girl that they pick up and then she jumps out the window and falls to her death. Yeah. It's her. They, they do a funeral scene earlier at the, at the graveyard and then they take her body and they take it back to like the mausoleum. Yeah. The, the vault. And they like pry this, you know, concrete slab thing up and they basically just dump her down into the, the crypt or the vault or whatever it's, it's called. And, um, yeah, that was pretty, pretty uh pretty stark but there's there's a moment where i think louise hears like an airplane and like looks up and to me what was so strange about that moment is you know you're so used to seeing graveyard scenes in horror movies right but mm -hmm. the graveyards always seem so divorced from the city mm -hmm. and right so much of this film seems like it's not that far from downtown paris so there's this weird kind of like they're not far from a lot of people. They're not far from life. There's not, you know, there's what, yeah. what, what traditionally makes horror movies scary is you're in isolation. You're out in the boonies. You can't reach anybody if you need it. And what makes this, I feel like, kind of unsettling is so many of these people are getting kidnapped in, in raw daylight, right? This is really before you get, like, serial killer movies. And um, it's funny. I just watched William Wyler's The Collector where it's got Terrence Stamp as this guy who's, like, kidnapping women and luring them into this basement. And it's one of the first uh, real kind of serial killer movies that treats it as being kind of a psychological behavior. So, like, M does it a little bit. But, you know, the, I, I feel like that genre before Silence of the Lambs was relatively, you know, quiet and dormant. But yeah. this one, you, you get that vibe where it's like, here's what's involved in getting someone into that car so you can get him out into the countryside like when she's got that that right he's got to use a woman he's got to use an attractive woman 
he's got to she's even got to earn their trust right by using the the different the uh what is it a ballet ticket or a dance ticket to try to be like hey my friend's not coming why don't you take this right, right. so it's to me it's just about how these young women are targets in the middle of this major metropolitan area and they still get taken away mm-hmm yeah, the the shot of the airplane did did jump out at me. I thought, well, that's interesting. That was an interesting thing to include. Um, one thing that I didn't pick up on until later in the movie was the fact that his house and like you know where his the lab or you know the room where everything happens in at is like right there by the hospital. I mean, like it. And one, there's one shot where he walks out of the house, <laughs> just walks over to the hospital. Like, and then that's pretty late in the movie. And you realize, oh man, he's he's right there, by whatever hospital that the the other girl at that point is yeah, at. Yeah. And I thought that's that's crazy that he's doing all this right next to where he's supposed to be a doctor, I guess. Huh. That's funny. I I don't know if I ever like thought about it consciously when I was watching. I mean, on one hand, it kind of makes sense because like in a lot of those like hospital resort movies like i think of like cure for wellness like in the gothic asylum tradition like the the lead doctor lives on the site you know what i mean uh i think even arkham asylum and batman's kind of done this a couple times where dr arkham literally lived on the grounds so i guess it makes sense but yeah i never even the house always seems so remote to me yeah well it feels that way for the most for the biggest part of the movie then it's it's towards the end where they send in the last girl, um, I think her name's Paulette, and uh, it's the one where the the two detectives or the detective and the fiance or the other guys kind of send her in, you know, as bait. And uh, there's a shot where he comes out of the house and walks over to the hospital in the same, it may be a pan, um, in the same shot. It just kind of all of a sudden it establishes this geography huh. that they're right there next to each other. That's funny. No, and that even kind of makes me feel think about like other horror movies that have fun with geography, like obviously Silence of the Lambs, the cross cutting where you think she's, where you think the guys are arriving at Buffalo Bill's house and she's going to somebody else's house, um, which you know creates this sense of suspense. Um, the other one that kind of comes to mind that somebody mentioned the other day, and I, I haven't seen it since it came out, is Scream Three. Where there's a chase scene through a set of the house from the first movie because yeah. they're making a film, yeah, right? Making the film, and so it's about surprising your expectations, like where it's like the set doesn't make any rational sense because it's a set. So like he'll run up the stairs and then fall onto a mat or something because yeah. the stairs are incomplete. Uh, fun, fun piece of trivia for you on that movie. Um, if I've got my my timeline right, because yeah, in Scream Three they're making a movie about the events of the first one. Yeah, stab. And there's, I think. A, there's a part where you see you see a scene from the movie that they're making, and it's um, it's a uh, um, oh man, I'm blanking on the on the actress's name, uh, Tori Spelling. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Tori Spelling and someone else. Uh, I can't remember the actor, but uh, do you know who directed that scene? Like actually, like shot that. No, I don't. Fake footage, or it's, I guess it's not fake footage, but it's, it's the movie within a movie, you know, bit. Uh, from what I understand, Robert Rodriguez directed that directed that scene. Oh, huh. So, I wouldn't doubt that. Yeah, yeah no, because I think I think he was kind of working at Dimension at the time. Yeah, it's been. I uh, haven't seen Scream Three, and yeah, that I just remember like most was, of it being it probably pretty. Probably wasn't too long after the Faculty. Yeah. That, so he was around. I just was thinking of like the function of those types of of those types of surprises, right? So like in Silence of the Lambs, it, it startles you, and there's a surprise, and you're you're unsettled for Clarice. Um, in Scream Three, it almost becomes kind of a slapsticky meta moment, right? So it, it's veering towards comedy, and here maybe it's just to establish the fact that he's just been he's got this kind of demeanor of normalcy that just comes with being a doctor so people like don't read his you know like he gets so much leeway just because he's a plastic surgeon right 
Because right. he's not particularly nice to other people. He's he's no. kind of a horrible person. But the movie opens up with him like giving this lecture and he's got like these fans that come up <laughs> to him and stuff and he's not exactly kind. But, but why do you why do you feel like those fans follow him around? Um uh, are they hoping that they can get plastic? <laughs> that's that's kind of where I go go with it a little bit. He's like he's gonna make us young again. So what uh what two scenes kind of summarize the movie for you? If you had to pick two moments that establish what make Eyes Without a Face unique, what would they be? Oh man, um, trying to think. Um, what makes it unique? Uh, well, the ending, for sure. I mean, I think leaves you with a pretty good impact. Um, the way all that plays out, and then the that the final shot of her coming out from the house where the animals have kept, and, you know, where father's been attacked and stuff, and then uh, all the animals are loose, and so is she now. And then there's these doves flying around, which, you know, I'm pretty sure was a John Woo um, <laughs> influence, um, which apparently, I think he, I think he did say that, that this movie was a big influence on Face Off, um, <laughs> both for the doves and the, the skin, the face, you know, skin grafting um, idea. Um, but beyond the ending, I'm trying to think, I mean, I mean, I guess the, you know, the scene where she comes in and, and you see her face, I mean, that's got to be an iconic um, moment. It's probably the scene that most people would think of when they think about the movie. Um, I don't know if I could do better, come up with a better one. No, those would probably be my two. Um, maybe adding in the the surgery scene, because it, like, I mean, for a film with pretty rudimentary special effects at the time, where he's yeah. actually doing the plastic surgery... I yeah. remember like seeing it with that that crowd as an undergrad, where some people in there were like getting woozy and like, you know, one person was like, I would just like it. <laughs> I had heard rumors that somebody was feeling faint or something, and I've I've never quite gotten that far, but it is certainly one of those where it's like, wow, this this is pretty effective, you know, yeah. for the time, you know, it's not cro- quite like Cronenberg gross, but it, there's something very. It, it does feel like you're watching an actual, you know, actual yeah, footage of a, a surgery. There's definitely a strong uh, macabre um, feeling that you get. And again, that's that goes back to like his documentary work. Well, he'll show you something really, you know, horrible, but yet there'll be something kind of pretty or fascinating about it, where mm-hmm. it's like you can't look away. Like you're like, huh, this is this is this should make me really un- upset or physically ill but i can't look away i gotta keep watching um, oh, i was gonna ask um so aside from this film was, are there any other films by this director that are like well known or is this primarily the movie he's kind of remembered for it's it's primarily outside, outside of his documentary stuff um the other big one that i know of is judex and judex is pretty interesting because it's a i believe was it a comic book? No, it's a remake of a French serial. So it was basically this pulp hero who does, like, revenge schemes. And essentially what he does is this guy goes back and, it, like, if people have been wronged, he's kind of a type of superhero. Um, he doesn't – he's more like Batman. He doesn't actually have a superpower. Uh, yeah. But he goes in and, and writes wrongs about while wearing, like, this costume. If I remember right, it's a big, like, beak mask. So there's another kind of fascination with, with birds going on in that and masks in general. Um, so it's 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 pretty decent. I remember picking it up when Criterion put it out and being really excited for it and then watching it. And I think I kind of overhyped it a little bit in my head, you know, yeah. when, on those kind of moments. Um, but other than that, I'm trying to think. Yeah, he he actually didn't make that many movies. Because um, I think Eyes Without a Face was his non-fiction debut, if I remember right. And then he makes maybe seven or eight films. And the 
largest Thomas the Imposter was uh, sent to Berlin, but in general, yeah, a short documentary. I think he also did a short documentary about George Melies. Um, so, okay. yeah, I, I don't actually know that much about his personal life other than he was one of the founders of the Cinémathèque Française. So he was always this figure with Henry Langlois who had kind of gone into French culture and was like, I want to educate young folks about the importance of film. And so they established this repertory theater that, of course, Godard and Truffaut go to. And they start watching all these old American movies and they become critics and then they become filmmakers. So his importance to, I feel like, film culture in general is almost more significant from what he did with the Cinematheque than what he did as a as a director, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I was just curious if there were any other of his films that were like must-watches, you know, stuff that I should be aware of. Yeah, I, I definitely think um, Judex is, and from what I, you know, from what you enjoy, I think you'll have a, a good time in watching it. Uh, and I think, again, it's probably on Filmstruck, just like uh, Eyes Without a Face is. But definitely watch, if you have the stomach for it, Blood blood of the beast on the on the blu-ray because it's yeah it's like i said maybe 20 minutes it's it's a really important kind of infamous piece of documentary filmmaking and it's it's good like his documentary work is really solid the melies piece was was good too because i think i watched it around the time that hugo came out and yeah you're i wasn't you know I knew obviously about george melies but i didn't know much about him after his film career and i was curious and terms of how far that you know hugo kind of may have embellished things and it, it wasn't like he basically goes into the train station and finds where his stall had been and kind of who worked with him and yeah it's just it's sad it's sad as hell um but yeah were there any other uh observations about eyes without a face that you wanted to share before i cut you loose or um yeah one little minor thing just another like set production thing like and i didn't catch it until later was it like I don't know if they all are, but a lot of the mirrors, especially like in her room, oh, yeah. are painted black. I didn't catch that right off right off the bat. Um, just talking about influences, you mentioned that she, the actress um, Edith Scobe, um, yes, yeah, she was in Holy Motors, and apparently there are several references to the mask. She, yeah, she wears movie. a mask in there. Um, I saw that movie, but it's been a couple of years ago since I watched it. Um, and apparently, Antonio Banderas did a movie a few years ago called The Skin I Live In, which yep. is kind of another takeoff on this story or this kind of idea. So and I haven't seen it either. Yeah, that's one of the automotivars that I haven't seen. Um, but I've heard it's I heard it's decent. I mean, although, again, what kind of pushed me away at the at the beginning was I'm like, oh, you're going to remake Eyes Without a Face? Why would you do that? Yeah. You know, like it's it's kind of it's kind of a hard film to live up to. Apparently it wasn't the it wasn't the first one either. There was one in 1988 called Faceless, which was again another takeoff on it. Yeah. In it either. Hmm. But this movie made some sort of impact because people keep remaking it in <laughs> Stripe or another. Well, if if you enjoyed it, another uh, French director that you might um, want to pick up on is uh, Henri uh, Clouseau, who did uh, Diabolique and Wages of Fear and. Okay. It did some. He did like French thrillers. So yeah. Uh, Which is fear is what uh, Sorcerer is based on, right? Or yeah. Was I remake? A... Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely, I, I I it's it's a pretty loose remake, but it, it's a remake of it. And uh, Diabolique was remade here, and but that's like his Alfred Hitchcock movie where, you know, it's he basically Hitchcock wanted to make the book, and I think he beat him to the to the rights and. Yeah, I don't know. I, I took a whole class on, on French, like, horror films and crime films. That was a lot of fun. And, yeah, these these two or three were certainly on there. And, uh, yeah, Eyes Without a Face always leaves quite the impression. Yeah, man. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And, uh, yeah, we'll have yeah, to ha- have you back on when uh, there's something else that you want to want to catch up on. Or maybe you can throw me one next time. Yeah, well, I was just going over these kinds of movies. I I was reminded of some movies I really liked um, in college, and we we should do like a Mario Baba uh, movie, like Planet of the Vampires or something. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that, or another one in that vein. Something like that would be fun. Well, I was talking to Julia, my previous guest, about Baba because I'm I'm relatively new to him, 
So all Sorry. I've seen is uh, Blood and Black Lace and um, The Girl Who Knew Too Much of the Evil Eye, depending on what version you watch, and Bay of Blood. So those are the only three. So uh, yeah, if you're if you're feeling up for for talking Baba, maybe we can do that uh, next October. Yeah, Planet of the Planet of the Vampires would be a fun one because it's um, it's sort of in the kind of Forbidden Planet uh, vein, if I remember right. Sort of, I mean, it's very kind of fifties sci-fi, you know, a little camp esque stuff, but it's it's very Italian. So um, I remember watching it in college and and loving it so that'd be a fun one to revisit and also man i've got tons of like criterion movies that i haven't watched <laughs> that i would probably be a good candidate for too i mean like i've never seen don't look now um uh black narcissist i mean life and death of colonel blimp i mean i've got a, oh, a big, nice. yeah. a big uh, stack of stuff to watch that might be a good fit for the podcast so no that'd be great Oh, before before I before we go, actually, we should we should have this discussion because the reason I'm doing horror movies in October is obviously because it's Halloween, and we're trying to catch up on a couple that folks haven't seen. So the previous episode was Suspiria. Obviously, this one's Eyes Without a Face. I'm doing one more before I pivot back to more traditional material, and it's going to be Jacques Ternaire's um, Night of the Night of the Demon. I think it is, okay. which is it's coming out on an indicator. I've heard amazing things about it uh, i think martin scorsese said it's one of the scariest films he's ever seen um but it, it always had like most of the films here kind of a shoddy video release so um came out in the uk and they're finally sending me my copy uh this week along with my my william castle set so that being said let's talk about stuff that we have seen um, for a little bit, uh, what would be your three Halloween picks? If you had to recommend your three scariest Halloween films to, uh, to friends for the, for the holiday, what would you tell them to watch? Uh, uh, okay. So scariest or like the ones that I enjoy, like stuff that I watch every year or try to watch often. Uh, try to split the difference. Maybe do, you know, two and one or one and two, whatever way you want to go. Uh, three movies you got to watch during Halloween. Uh, Man, okay, so <laughs> it's probably it's a little off, but one that I that I always try to watch just because I enjoy the version is uh, I always try to watch the the Disney Legend of Sleepy Hollow. That's a great, yeah, no, that's a great yeah, one. It's just it's super. It just says Halloween time, and so I try to pull that out and watch that at least once every year for Halloween. Um, I mean, obviously, Halloween, the movie itself, the original, is a hard one not to include, but I'm one of those guys that have a, has a soft spot for Season of the Witch, mm. um, mainly because of the soundtrack, uh, but also just the movie itself. Obviously, it doesn't fit very well within, like, the Halloween Michael franchise. Michael Myers mythos, yeah. But, but I think they would have done better just to have made it its own standalone movie and just called it Season of the Witch and let it let it stand on its own. But that's one of my favorites, too watch um often this time of year um man i'm trying to think of uh of another one that either made a really big impact or one of my like personal favorites um again it's not really like a halloween one but um one that's a fun watch is phantom of the paradise oh yeah just good throw brian de palma one in and i i didn't i hadn't seen it until just a few years ago but um you know, just a good, fun Brian De Palma watch. No, absolutely. It's that's become like my wife's favorite Brian De Palma movie because you know the music's fun and it's ridiculous, and they've got you know great costumes and you know the different kind of in jokes to like the psycho shower scene with the mm-hmm. with the plunger. It's 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 a great film. Yeah, um, it was shot at the Majestic in Dallas, which is oh, that's right. Fun. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, so I was I've been thinking about my three because my students keep asking me, and one of them is always going to be David Cronenberg's The Fly. Yeah, and, and I think it's because it works on so many different emotional registers. Like there's moments that I watch that film where, you know, I'm absolutely disgusted by what I'm seeing. You know, like I still remember the scene where he's uh, arm wrestling the guy in the bar, and it's just I, I won't spoil it, but yeah, it's it's so unsettling and you know and that kind of classic body horror uh Cronenberg style but what I love about it is that their relationship 
is so real in that movie and part of it's probably because they were dating in real life and all of the kind of you know chemistry they had off the screen um but by the end of the film like you you you're scared of this thing you're you're disgusted but you're also incredibly moved in that last you know couple of scenes where it's just really distressing uh and then yeah again i don't want to completely spoil it because it's not on that uh the the episode's not on that film in particular but it's just it's one of those where it's almost hard for me to rewatch for those reasons where it's like i'll I'll gag i'll feel you know kind of woozy but i'll also once in a while be crying by the end of it um the other two probably are the shining for obvious reasons and then yeah it's 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 hard for me not to say something like alien so i'm gonna i'm gonna dig right. a little deeper here like and it'd I'm, be easy to say the thing yeah course. exactly yeah so I'm, I'm trying not to do that so my other one would be it's more of a recent find it's uh the innocence okay by jack clayton and it's an adaptation of the turn of the screw uh the james novel okay. so it's essentially a ghost story and it's about this this uh governess who's left alone with these two children in this big countryside manor and um you can't tell if she's sexually repressed and going crazy or if there are actually ghosts in the house. And so it's it's black and white. It's got Deborah Kerr in it. It's from 1961, so it's not necessarily at a time where you had to use black and white. It's kind of around the time of Psycho. Um, but Clayton uses it and widescreen in a really unsettling way where there's just constantly this kind of playfulness with the edges of the frame and this, these ethereal compositions, it is really good. Uh, so if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. And uh, the Criterion Blu-ray uh, is worth a blind buy. I may have brought it with me, so if you want to borrow it, I can uh, swap it out for you. All right. But it's, yeah, it's... Should, we, should we point out to the listeners that we actually are in the same city, but just for recording sake, <laughs> Skype? We, we are in the same city, but yeah, I didn't want to upset the dog. Um, but um, yeah, like... If you want to borrow it, it's one of those movies where it's so inky and textured that it's it's worth seeing in, in HD over you know whatever you'd see streaming. Mm. I'm definitely I'm an atmosphere guy, man. I, that's what I really enjoy about those kinds of movies. It's it's not so much um, the content or I mean it's the story obviously, but anytime a movie can bring like really heavy, well done atmosphere, I'm there for the most part. Um, I'll throw out a fun one that I don't think gets enough mention in these kinds of discussions. And it's a movie that came out in college and you probably saw it. Um, but I loved it when it first came out and it's, it's like I said, it's not one that gets mentioned a lot. Uh, do you remember darkness falls that came out? I like actually never saw that one. Cause it looked so similar to, uh, what's the Riddick one? The first one pitch like black. black. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Like this was like to me, that movie and i haven't seen it again in quite a while but my memories of it are that it felt like an 80s movie that got made in 2002 or whenever it came out and like the the tooth fairy like characters they have in that movie and the way it's shot it's really dark um but really a lot of atmosphere kind of has kind of that like fable fairy tale sort of quality and i don't know it's just it's one that i enjoyed since it came out I'll have to check it out. Yeah, there's a couple like that. Like, uh, well, did who did it? Um, I have to look up his name. The guy that he went on to direct the uh, the Michael Bay Ninja Turtles, but um, huh. I'll look let's take name. a look. Yeah, because like okay. the, that kind of. Darkness Falls. Jonathan Liebsman. Liebsman. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, I remember him. Um, yeah, no. Uh, the one I kind of like in that mode is um, did you ever see House of the Devil, the Ty West movie? Uh, no. Tom no, Tom Noonan. Um, so it's again kind of a you know it's it's a plot you've seen a million times before, but. Uh, it's got Greta Gerwig in it, if I remember right, and it's but it's got like a pretty decent synth score, and you know it's definitely I trying. Think Tom Noonan is going to be interesting. Yeah, no, he's always good, and he he plays the 
the bad guy here, so he's having a blast. Well, thanks so much for coming on today, Clint. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to find something again in the future. And, uh, yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. Well, thanks for having me, man. I am uh, not part of the world of film criticism, nor an academic. So <laughs> I right. was a bit outside your wheelhouse. So thanks for thanks for having me, man. This was fun. Let's do it again. Again, that was Clint, Hannah, and I talking about Eyes Without a Face. Again, one of my favorite horror films. Very heavy on atmosphere. Um, in a couple weeks, I'll be having on Kate Hagen. And we're going to be talking about... Um, a Jacques Ternaire film called Night of the Demon, which I have never seen before, and neither has she. So I'm really excited about this. It's actually coming in the mail, hopefully today. That's uh, one of the new Indicator releases, uh, along with their William Castle box set. So things are kind of fully in the Halloween mood around here. And uh, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's it's been really atmospheric, a great time to be watching these horror movies. So I'm really excited. I can't underestimate that. Um, in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at the Cinema Doctor, and you can subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud. Please share with your friends, give five star ratings, whatever you think we deserve, all that good stuff. Um, and uh, we'll see you at the movies. Thanks so much for tuning in.